Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we report on the latest updates from across Ukraine, discuss Ukrainian reaction to the Belgorod incursion, and we hear from the Trident Defence Initiative, who train Ukrainian soldiers in-country. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday. The 24th of May, one year and 89 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, who's on the ground in Ukraine, and our guest is Daniel Ridley. Daniel is a former Ukrainian Marine and founder of Trident Defence Initiative, the largest foreign training organisation in Ukraine. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from the battlefront. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start in uh, in Bakhmut. So uh, Denis Pushilin, who's the self-proclaimed um, head of the Donetsk People's Republic, he said that Bakhmut is going to be renamed with its former Soviet name. Uh, he said Bakhmut had the misfortune to be Ukrainian. Now it's not Ukraine, it's Russia. And it's not Bakhmut, it's something else I can't be asked to say. I'm going to stick with Bakhmut, Denis, if it's all the same to you. So fine, whatever. Dennis obviously didn't get the memo from the Kremlin saying that the line that there's never been such a place as Ukraine, it's always been Russia. Um, You know, he's obviously made a bit of a mistake here. The the fact he talks about Bakhmut being Ukrainian, um, you know, and it's no longer Ukraine probably indicates, I would say, that he's not going to be offered that lucrative contract teaching geography in Moscow anytime soon. Um, but whilst we're on the subject, Alexei Danilov, who a Ukrainian national security advisor, he said today that part of Bakhmut is still under Ukrainian control. He said, if they, the Russians, believe they have taken Bakhmut, I can say that this is not true. As of today, part of Bakhmut is under our control. Uh, he's speaking to CNN. Um, he said, I can't say that all of it, but part of Bakhmut is still under our fire. So I think Bakhmut has been taken by Russia, as we've said before being able to put your put fire onto an area doesn't mean in any way that, that you hold it um i've i've also said i i don't think it's hugely important that it is that that russia has taken it for the reasons i've said before two different fights going on russia trying to claim geography and politics uh, and ukraine happy to meet that fight for the for the relative balance as in to wear down the ukraine uh, russian forces um so that's back moot now elsewhere these these this incursion in the belgorod region so looks like it's over 
the attack appears to have lessened in its intensity. Russian forces seem to have regained control of most areas. Um, the regional governor, Vyacheslav Gladkov, he said the night was not entirely calm. There were a large number of drone attacks. Air defence systems handled most of them. The most important thing is there were no casualties. So that's still going on there. And then today, just uh, just in the last few minutes, a uh, message from or well, news out of Moscow that uh, uh, Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defence minister, he said that Moscow will respond to attacks on Russian sto- soil, quote, extremely harshly. He said, we will continue to respond promptly. Yeah, how prompt it was, we're not entirely sure. We will continue to respond promptly and extremely harshly to such actions by Ukrainian militants. I mean, look, you know... <laughs> It's 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 embarrassing. Now, a number of images have come out. I said yesterday I wasn't sure what had happened. I wasn't, or rather, I wasn't sure that Russia uh, had retaken the area because we hadn't seen anything yet on social media and what and what have you. Now there have been images since then, but uh, so you'll go and find them. You'll find them on on social media. You'll probably find them on our live blog as well. But I, you know, I I take issue with some of them, and it's, it's, I'll just quickly talk talk through them so whoever it was that went in there these two uh, the two groupings published a, a, a photo and bellingcat elliot higgins from bellingcat the online you know Aussie investigator agency said that they that one of the pictures in one of the pictures is a guy a russian guy called alexander shashkov who was arrested by the ukrainian security service in 2020 during a raid on people selling translated versions of the Christchurch shooter, remember New Zealand Christchurch shooters, manifesto. Bellingcat did a big dive into the topic. This guy was arrested. He now washes up as one of these Russian volunteers. So I, I, don't, I think that's probably accurate, especially if Bellingcat is saying this and Elliot Higgins. Um, so you've got to ask ourselves, is it how beneficial is it to Ukraine to have, uh, to have used these people or to have given some kind of tacit support? And I think they were given tacit support, bearing in mind they were using... Humvees and MRAPs that were that were donated by the US and and other vehicles as well um, from other countries. So that, that I think we should note that I think we should note that this guy has got a a checkered far right past. But we just add that to the mill. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't say that there's a load of Nazis in Kiev and all the rest of it. But I think we should just note it as I think that's very accurate if if Bellingcat has say it. However, Russia have also put out a number of images about the about the attack, and they've published photographs from the border checkpoint that show. Um, Humvees, so American armored, armored, wheeled armored vehicles, Humvees and other armored vehicles have been destroyed on the raid on the border point. Now, I'm very suspicious about these images. Um, I they show one of them in particular shows two Humvees crash into a ditch, but there's no tire tracks on the ground. Um, it looks like soil has been moved. One of the wheels has been dragged uh, into position. It, there are suggestions that, that that this didn't happen, that this was staged, and that um, these vehicles were were put in there probably by a low loader with a with a crane. So, look, I reiterate, I I don't know, I don't know what happened there, but that that image in particular raised a lot of alarm bells for me when I when I looked at it, um, and and it it almost doesn't matter, and of course it matters about the other guy, uh, Shashkov, if he is uh, if he has got far right views, but beyond that. Beyond that, I don't think the I don't think the images of the potentially staged Humvees matter because Osama bin Laden 
Remember that loser? Yeah. Okay, him. Right. The one thing he did get right was this idea about the propaganda of the deed, that that you know the spectacular event and the um, emotion and memories that can be stirred up by an event are more immediate and more sorry more important than the than the immediate outcome. So you know, put all that together, and what I'm saying is is that something clearly did happen here. Russia haven't put out any images of dead bodies or captured personnel. This seems like a raid across the border, and then they've all got themselves out of there. Um, I think I think that image is probably staged of the Humvees. But hey, let's say they lost a couple of Humvees, but they seemingly all got out. And then you got Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister, saying, "Oh, you guys, the next time you invade Russia, oh, I gotta come and get you." I mean, it just—it's so embarrassing for Russia. These are all part of the shaping operations, as we've described already uh, in recent in recent weeks. But it, it's just so hugely embarrassing for Russia for this for this to happen and for them to have taken whatever it was two or three days to 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 stamp it out if indeed they did stamp it out or the, the blokes just just turned around and drove back over the border so there will be more i'm sure coming out over the next few days um like i say drone strikes in the area last night so it doesn't seem to be completely over but the actual the incursion that sort of 5k lodgement now does seem to be, seem to have collapsed back to the border but um yeah i reiterate almost irrelevant that bit the propaganda of the deed is what's important here thank you very much dom uh joe barnes can i come to you next you're on the ground in ukraine where are you and what are you seeing so i'm in a little village called yidna which is kind of outside of about 40 minutes outside chernihiv in the uh, in the northern region of ukraine it's uh the oblast that mainly borders belarus and russia so it's actually quite an interesting place to be at the moment given the situation in belgrade while i'm not on that side i'm to the left hand side of ukraine it does mean i've had a chance to speak to a lot of people responsible for guarding that area uh, between the border of belarus uh, and russia that then darts down basically to kiev so it's been quite fascinating and obviously the belgrade question has oh sorry that is an air raid siren that's just finished if uh, anyone could hear that um so the um, what's been really fascinating is it's given me a chance to speak to people who are responsible for this. And for instance, I spoke to a chap called uh, Yuri Pretovich, who is the deputy head of the Chernihiv region's uh, National Border Guard Force. So his, his team are responsible for guarding that space between Belarus and Russia and then the rest of Ukraine coming downwards. And I grilled him and grilled him on this Belgorod situation and was like, look, like, what did you know about it? And he's like, ah, oh, it's not in my sphere of my sphere of uh, competence. The first time I heard about it was the same as you. I watched the videos on Telegram with Joy. And I was like, oh, but did Kiev not tip you off to say that you're going to have to, like, make sure that your men are there to provide an extra layer of security? Because there is obviously that risk of a, a rapid counteroffensive coming back the other way. And he was like, oh, no, look, we were always ready we're always ready and he, that kind of made me think he knew more about it than he was letting on but obviously then he added in the the usual caveats that ukraine and kiev have been saying in the last day or two is look there was no ukrainian boots on the ground it wasn't involving ukrainian soldiers it was just these two russian units these battalions and they they call them partisans like we've seen ukrainian partisans in russian held territory and in crimea and so forth so forth um and then I said, okay, what about um, if, you, if you had nothing to do with it, if you didn't know, what do you think of it? What, did you, what was your reaction when you saw these Russians uh, fighters fighting on behalf of Ukraine, moving into Belgorod and then that region? And he went, ah, oh, I was very glad, I was very glad. And I was like, okay, but and what, what does it mean? And he was like, 
I hope it brings forward basically an uprising against Vladimir Putin and his regime. It shows people inside Russian inside the Russian border what war means, what it means to be invaded, and essentially hopefully sparks some sort of revolution. But that's to be to be foreseen. Um, we don't know because the fog the fog of war is is highly highly intense we're probably never going to find out what really really happened uh if not for weeks not for months but we'll give it a go of patching the stuff together so we moved on from him and then I, I spoke to um military civil administrator of the chernihiv region so that that large region in the north of ukraine and he's basically responsible for overseeing the entire defense of the region on a military level but it also combines that with a civil level and um again i was like what like what what are you seeing what, what are you seeing on the ground and he again reiterated no Ukrainians were involved. And I, I went, okay, but that's that's interesting. But I then said, while flicking through sort of his Telegram channel with him, um, and he is basically, every day, he updates on how many shelling attacks are launched over the Belarus and the Russian border into these Ukrainian villages straddling that sort of territory. Uh, many of them have been completely evacuated, but he said, no, look, the main impact of what we have to do is we have to hurry up those evacuations. We have to really ramp up our efforts. And I was like, oh, okay, well, but you, what you are showing is, is there is a, a buildup of a ramping up of artillery and shelling activity across the, across the border into Ukraine. And he went, yes, that's right. That, that has been happening for the last two weeks. And we've really, really seen a difference. And I went, oh, okay. Like, and then he, then he continued, he sort of interrupted me as we obviously speaking via a translator as, as Ukrainians do, they will take pause they're, they're, they, these, these guys and women involved are very, <laughs> They're almost professional now. They they can take a pause, let the let the interpreter, let the translator take over, and then they come back in. And um, so I asked, had the the shelling, the increase of shelling, had any direct correlation to Belgrade or potentially the long anticipated counteroffensive? And he said the shelling was likely a move by Russian forces to redirect the attention and the power of Ukraine's armed forces. So the armed forces of Ukraine are somehow fixed to the territory and not turning to other territories. Look, you have to read between the lines here. Um, I think he's more speaking broadly about the counteroffensive, and he's basically saying the Russians are launching extra attacks and they're ramping up attacks basically to divert the resources of Ukraine to defending itself rather than going on the offensive. But does that also mean that there is a slight intelligence idea from the Russian side that they had an idea that this was coming? Um, there, we, we, we can't verify the, the contents of it, but there has been a, a document floating around purportedly from the discord leaks claiming that ukraine had armed a group of russian soldiers fighting on behalf of ukraine with nato standard weapons and and nato standard training um which is often i sort of when i saw this i first discarded it as russian propaganda because that's one thing that um moscow tries so interestingly to do make sure it's saying that oh look this is not a war between ukraine and russia this is a war between nato and, and russia so i kind of discarded it but then you actually look back and go did someone actually have an idea of what was going on and this was in what was deemed to be a u.s intelligence document again it's from the discord leaks we know that those leaks have been tampered with before we know they've been altered and we know that fake documents essentially have been put out so that's that's an interesting look at that but so I think that the Ukrainians do know a lot more about what's happening inside Belgorod as it stands, and they'll continue, I think, to probably launch these as part of some sort of effort to maybe, maybe, while the the, minister, the military uh, administrator of Chernihiv was saying it's an effort to be shelling across the borders, an effort to keep Ukrainian forces from running riot and redirect their attention, maybe 
attacking this border with Russia is an attempt to redirect Russian resources outside of Ukraine and to Russia's immediate border while the Ukrainians prepare for their counteroffensive. And I'll stop there for now. Thank you very much, Joe. Just very quickly, because I'm sure um, uh, Daniel later will be able to add to some of yours and Dom's thoughts. But very quickly, you, you talked about the reaction to the Belgorod raids from um, the officials you spoke to. H- have you got any sense of how civilians on the ground where you are uh, feel about it as well? Or was it just the officials? Yeah. So when I first came across it, everyone else, I was, I was typically on a bus. With them, and next to me was a, a Ukrainian who was acting as an interpreter for me and for a, a group of journalists I'm with just currently. Um, and he was watching with glee. He was like, this is incredible. And like showing that there were these kind of vehicles and these people going into Russia on the back with, they, with yellow tactical markings. So yeah, they're, they're, they're happy that the fight's being taken to Russia. And they obviously, that, that, like the, the, this is where, you, you, Ukrainians are very good at this. They're, they're, the line between what the politicians say and what the, like, just the regular Joe on the street says is there's no difference between it. You couldn't, there's no, no kind of, sheet of paper between that distance no track paper between it um and he was saying look this finally shows like russian people what it's like to be us what we've suffered for 15 months they now they can understand that look they're they're basically they're they're on the receiving end for once rather than us having to have put up with vladimir putin's sort of antics for the last 15 months and the terror and havoc he's wreaked on just normal communities who are trying to get get by their lives rather than wanting to be invaded Thank you very much, Joe. And um, very quickly, before we go to Francis, um, what's next on your agenda? When will we hear from you again? So heading back to Kiev now, and hopefully got a few interviews in the works there, but I want to tell you just in case they fall through, because they're prone to do that, because government ministers and stuff like to go walkies, and often everything's done at the last minute. And then hopefully we'll then be heading somewhere else uh, to kind of cover closer to the front line and outside of the city where everything's going on. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you another quick story, because I did... Um, leaving Kiev to go up to Chernihiv for a few days. Um, we stopped, I stopped off at a, um, a territorial defence training centre. Um, and it's kind of a really interesting tale because there's, there's obviously a lot of people wanting to fight on the front lines, but there is need for volunteers to stay back and to fulfil fulfill jobs. And it's, it's this unit in a small village in the Kiev region, um, small little district of villages, like a cluster, and there's a... I think it's uh, pronounced Kortov or Kotov. Um, sorry, I'm being attacked by mosquitoes at the moment. That's one thing. It's mosquito season in Ukraine and uh, the swamps of Chernihiv have really thrown them up. So I'm looking like a sort of a swollen mess at the moment. Um, and um, it, yeah, it, it, this unit could sound like a, a, a bad joke. It was like a computer programmer, a local politician and a, and a tractor driver um, stand at a gun range. Um, but it wasn't actually what was really, it was really fascinating. And there was a, a chap called Vitali whose brother was fighting down in back moot. Um, and I was like, oh, don't you want to go? And he's like, no, so look, my brother's there. I'd love to be there. But one of us has to stay behind and, and be on duty here for, for family, but also for the protection of the uh, local area. And one thing, this territorial d- defense unit, which is all volunteers, they're not paid. They, they only make money through their day jobs. Um, are instructed to do because they're a part of the essentially the armed forces of Ukraine now in the main under the main guidance of the Ukrainian military and the ground forces. Um, one of their duties is they have to guard the critical infrastructure because Vladimir Putin's military is still launching attacks 
while they might have changed direction slightly looking at air defense targets they still also try to blow up uh electricity substations and he was putting this guy uh Vitaly's put in charge of guarding one particular substation which provides provides um electricity and power to around half the homes in kiev so it's a real sort of uh important position to be in especially as a volunteer and he had no military sort of experience before the war his um his training has all been honed on this sort of makeshift shooting range which is a 200 meter range and when we arrived people were practicing their sniper shots they were practicing with ak-47s various kalashnikov weapons um and i was like oh so so, so what it, what's it like to face a uh to be placed on this position and he um told me a story as well on the 18th of may joe um i actually shot an iranian drone out of the sky um and he said i was stationed here at this electricity substation and while missiles and drones were raining down on kiev one of these drones as the, as the kind of the dawn light broke over over his position um he saw this drone, he could obviously hear it, and he started unloading AK-47 fire at it and eventually managed to actually take it out of the sky where it fell about 100 metres from him and then exploded into a big ball of flames on the ground. And I was like, well, that's incredible. And actually, there's a, I think there's a story to tell, and I will be writing something on it when I've kind of met more of these guys. But there's a there's like a hidden sort of the the men that are left behind um, to fulfil these crucial jobs. And uh, um, I was speaking to another guy, um, and, and only he was, and he was like their local commander. He was like their their administrator as well he was like dealing with connecting what they're trying to do with them with the military and he was um oh sorry i've just swallowed a mosquito that's disgusting um there we go sorry about that um and he was telling this story about how one of their main tasks now is because air defense systems are becoming so targeted and they're they're worried that russian saboteurs could turn up in all the likes they actually have the, their group of volunteers actually take part in the rotation of guarding these air defense systems when they're not in use so when the operators go on a break when they go to the toilet when they go to get lunch or whatever these guys will stand guard by and he, he used the example they were currently guarding a german jeopard system on the outskirts of very interesting um and i won't try and give too much away because obviously it's really sensitive information and then um yeah, but that was fascinating. And then one thing he did do is um, we were speaking about Bakhmut because uh, a number of their sort of comrades have gone to the front line. And um, and I was saying, what do you think of Vladimir Putin? Um, Vladimir Putin's claim has fallen. And he instantly got his phone out and said, oh, look, my friend sent me this drone video. Um, and that drone video showed a tower block, a housing estate tower block with a mural that's now become quite famous. It's a, a son sitting on his father's shoulders playing with a, a toy plane to a kind of a blue sky. It's, it's, and it's become sort of a symbol of better times in Bakhmut. And I think the um, New York Times, who run a, a fantastic sort of drone piece earlier in the week, had had that had, had reference to it as well. So it's a, it was a really sort of fascinating thing. And he said, look, that's basically the last sort of holdup that Ukrainian troops are using, and it's being constantly shelled by the Russians, but they're still there. And I was like, okay, and slightly sceptical as everyone is, because what, uh, as Dom was saying earlier, what what constitutes Ukraine holding back moot when they're literally just on the southwestern tip? Is it a road? Is it? And then he went, no, no, no. Like, if you don't believe me, let... and he phoned he phoned one of his comrades, a guy called Maxim, who was actually on the front line, a member of the 135th Territorial Defense Battalion of Ukraine's Armed Forces, and um, he was like look we're fighting every day the fighting is really back and forth like and he said the russians attack attack but 
then the Ukrainians will come back and attack, attack, attack. We won't give up. We're still going to fight for it. We're going to really give it our all. And while he's speaking in front, you can obviously hear like the faint rumble of artillery fire and stuff in the background coming up, blasting out the, the my uh, well, not my telephone speaker, but Anatoly's telephone loudspeaker as we've got having this conversation via an interpreter. So it's, it's a really fascinating look. And that's one of the, I guess, one of the reasons and one of the ways that Ukraine is justifying that Bakhmut hasn't fallen because there is still fighting going on there. And I'll, I'll stop there again. Well, thank you very much, Joe Barnes, uh, battling the mosquitoes of the Swans of Trini here for, for, for joining us. We look forward to hearing from you again when you're back in Kiev. And obviously, please do stay safe. We look forward to hearing your reporting. Um, can I go to Francis Durnley? There's been quite a few diplomatic updates you need to talk us through. Thanks, David. Yes, a few interesting political developments to report today. I'm going to start with some of the reactions to what we've been seeing in Belgorod. Perhaps, understandably, there has been some concern about what this might mean. Yesterday, the US insisted it did not encourage or enable strikes inside of Russia. And a State Department spokesman acknowledged reports circulating on social media and elsewhere that U.S. supplied weapons had been used, but said that the United States was sceptical at this time of the veracity of these reports. And then this was Matthew Miller speaking. It's up to Ukraine to decide how to conduct this war. But as I say, I think the main thing there is it didn't encourage this. They're trying to claim that, in a sense, ignorance as to what has happened. And I think the reason for the diplomatic anxiety we're seeing this morning is that a large portion of Western political backing for Ukraine hinges on Ukraine's ability to maintain its ethical superiority. And some of the affiliations of the Russian factions involved in this incursion, which Don was just talking about, are reported to have espoused some neo-Nazi beliefs in the past, which casts a rather negative light on some of the arguments used that strengthens Ukraine's cause in this war. And moreover, these actions inadvertently could validate the Russian propaganda narrative regarding the threat posed by the West and that Russia is existentially threatened. If this incident proves to be a minor deviation within the broader Ukrainian counteroffensive, then you could argue that it's sort of justified and it'll all be forgotten rather quickly. But it does come with risks. And I think it's just important to register that, as we've tried to do today, that whatever has happened here, it's a huge coup for uh, pro-Ukrainian elements, certainly. It's hugely embarrassing for Putin in the same manner that the drone strikes were a few weeks ago. But it is important to emphasise that this is something that has consequences and leads to a few people being rather anxious. So that's that. In other news, a quick update on the Chinese Special Envoy's grand tour around Europe. We understand that he will visit Russia on May the 26th. That's according to TAS, the Russian state-owned news agency, citing an unnamed source. The former ambassador to Moscow, Li, is earning his free air miles, I think it's fair to say. He's already been to Ukraine, Poland, France and Germany and was, of course, the most senior Chinese official to visit Ukraine since the invasion. As I've said before, we're not expecting any breakthroughs, but it's interesting that this is happening at such pace. And who knows, maybe there'll be some kind of announcement to come out of this when it's all been wrapped up. I would be very surprised if Russia don't try and make something of the fact that Russia is being visited last and, of course, it being the Chinese that are going there, um, given the 
no holds barred relationship that they're trying to emphasize that they have. I'm expecting that we'll see some images coming out of that. Now, turning to Finland, tensions continue. Obviously, Genevieve has been covering this recently. Russia has apparently informed Finland that it will terminate a bilateral agreement on mutual visits to military installations. That's come out this morning of the Finnish Defence Ministry. This bilateral agreement signed in the year 2000 provided for one annual Russian assessment visit to Finland and a similar visit by Finland to the Leningrad military district in northwest Russia. But that was last applied in 2019 before the outbreak of the pandemic. And since the invasion uh, and since the pandemic, it has not been reinstated. And clearly that will now no longer be reinstated. Not unsurprising, I don't think, but it is yet another sign of the declining relations as a result of the war and Finland joining NATO recently. Now, just because I know listeners are on tenterhooks, uh, the grain deal, the Ukrainian port of Pivdeni has halted operations because Russia isn't allowing ships to enter it, apparently, which they are saying, in effect, cut it out of the deal, allowing the safe Black Sea grain exports, that's according to Ukrainian officials today. Now, not going to go over all of the Black Sea grain deal again, don't worry, but just to say that it did guarantee the export of grains from three Ukrainian ports, mostly Odessa, of course, but also Chernomorsk and Pivdeni. And the UN, together with Turkey, are said to be rather concerned about this, given the extension that was agreed last week. And so they've put out statements, as has the Ukrainian deputy renovation minister, who said formally the port is in the initiative. But in fact, it hasn't been there for a month. It has no incoming fleet. They, Russia, have found an effective way to significantly reduce grain exports by excluding the port, which handles large tonnage vessels from the initiative. So more on that as we have it. I think it's still a very important issue to monitor, given its importance for lots of different countries in Europe, but also obviously in the wider world. I wanted to end my segment, though, on a very interesting story from a couple of days ago. And this is that Russia's latest sanctions list has been released. Of course, we're very familiar to sanctions on this podcast with two of our (laughs) attendees today having been sanctioned by Russia. The other two, David and myself, have clearly been missed off another FSB cock up. But anyway, I digress. Uh, In this latest list, several enemies of Donald Trump have been included And it's clearly, I mean, the most blatant attempt I think we've seen of the Kremlin trying to woo the potential next president of the United States. So on this list, we've got the Capitol Police officer who shot a pro-Trump rioter during the January 6th insurrection. It's got the... Secretary of State of Georgia, uh, Brad Raffensperger, he was the chap who refused Mr. Trump's request to find the 11,000 votes he needed to reverse his defeat in 2020. Uh, Mr. Raffensperger has tweeted about the new sanctioning and he's seemingly rather happy about it, said it's a badge of honour. We've also got uh, Letitia James, New York State's Attorney General, who has pursued Trump and his businesses in the courts. She hasn't actually, like the others, spoke out in public on the Ukraine war, which just shows really how absurd this is. And uh, as I say, Moscow's shown where its sympathies lie. It says its targets include those in government and law enforcement agencies who are directly involved in the persecution of dissidents. Very interesting phrase there, obviously trying to use phrases that are common in the West, um, thinks it will win them some supporters in the West. 
in the wake of the so-called storming of the capital. It's unsurprising, as we've said many times, if Trump is re-elected, Russia believes it will be an absolutely huge moment for them because he has claimed to be able to end the war in 24 hours. And so it's one of the few ways out, one could argue, that Russia has to gain some semblance of victory in this war. So it's going to be a very, very interesting few months seeing what happens in the US. And as ever, we're very interested to hear from listeners over there as to the evolving situation on the ground and in voting. Thank you very much, Dom, Joe and Francis there. Can I come to our guest, Daniel Ridley? Daniel, thank you so much for joining us from Ukraine. Um, for new listeners, we, we've we've obviously interviewed you before, but for those listeners who um, who haven't heard you before, could you just reintroduce yourself and tell us what you do in Ukraine? Thanks, David. Yes, uh, great to be back here. Um, I am a former British Army soldier, and I also spent three years in the Ukrainian Marines. Uh, currently, I am the founder and director of what is Ukraine's largest uh, training center, staffed by foreign and Ukrainian instructors. We've to date trained 8,000 Ukrainian soldiers, medics, drone pilots, etc. Last time we spoke to you, um, you told us a little bit about your training programs. Would you just give us a sense of um, what you do and how that's changed over the past few months? Yeah, so uh, most of our sort of main courses uh, come down to our basic infantryman's course. That's a sort of a basic soldiering course, all encompassing. And that provides the bulk of our students that last two weeks. Um, we also run two medical courses, one being a team medics course. That's three weeks in length. Um, and that provides a very sort of high standard in the small time we have training sort of frontline medics for the Ukrainian military. Um, and then we also run a number of drone programs, uh, official state-sponsored drone programs. And really, the the training really does flow with the the fluidity of the war. So pre- prior to the uh, the last counteroffensive, which obviously included uh, Kharkiv, where I am now, and Kherson region, we were training, you know, preparing for that. You know, it was in the air; those things were coming. Ukraine was moving forward, um, and we were preparing predominantly more, you know, forward tactics, assault tactics, things like that. And then after that counteroffensive was, you know, highly successful, um, we then switched back to more defensive training. You know, Ukraine is is trying to move forward and then hold on to what they have and then uh, rebuild, you know, rearm, acquire more, you know, complex weapons and then go on another offensive. So for the last few months, our, our training has been predominantly uh, focused on moving forward. Before we talk about some of these programmes, um. Obviously, you've heard Dom and Joe give their reports on the incursion into Belgorod. Can I ask you what your thoughts are on that and, and whether that's been well, what's been the reaction amongst your, your students to, to this news? So, yeah, so um, I'll cover cover the reaction on the ground, whether it be from, you know, Ukrainian society as a whole and, and, and from a military perspective. But um, of course, the reaction is quite positive. And I think especially in Kharkiv region where, you know, I've been for the last year when the Russians were you know, surrounding the city, shelling it every day, every hour with conventional means. And since the Russians have been pushed back, we are shelled almost daily, uh, a minimum weekly, the center of the sea, no real military targets. So people of Kharkiv and the region are constantly under attack from Russia. Um, and all those attacks originate from uh, the Belgorod Oblast, and which the Ukrainians sort of affectionately call the Belgorod People's Republic. But all those attacks originate from there. So there's an air raid alarm, you know, you're looking, is there launches from the Belgorod Oblast? That's where they're launching all the munitions from that, that then end up in Kharkiv City and, and, and injuring and killing civilians. That's been going on for, you know, since the beginning of the war. And, you know, I, I obviously I can't speak for everyone as a whole over there, but just what you see from social media, the, 
a lot of the people, the the, the pro Putin or the pro war people in Belgrade, they're they're happy. They they like to see the panic. They like to see the the issues caused uh, by Russia's bombing of what is effectively civilians in Kharkiv, and to finally have something pushed back, whether it be a Ukraine you know sanctioned or Ukraine aligned operation, or whether it be of part of uh, you know a fringe uh, Russian rebel group or whatever you'll call it, to give something back to 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 a place that's been hurting us for a long time was was very positive. From the soldiers, you know, not such a such a great reaction. You know, they're they're living in a different situation. They're trying to to hold on and, and defend and, and recapture Ukrainian territory. And, and the alleged members of the the operation in Belgorod were obviously of a different different sort of uh, part or different state than the Ukrainian military itself, their reaction was different. But from civilians, you know, what you're seeing in regards to memes and, and, and other things that the Ukrainian population is posting is a, a very, very positive outcome. Whether the operation was hugely successful, like Dom said, um, I, I believe it was more of a psychological operation. You know, it doesn't really have any clear-cut military goals. It wasn't to capture something or destroy something, but it exposed a big gap in, in Russia's ability to react and prevent cross-border, you know, large-scale cross-border attacks into their territory. We've seen during the course of the war, Ukrainian sabotage groups going into Russia um, and conducting attacks and failed and successful attacks, uh, small groups. But to have a sort of combined arms uh, attack into Russia proper is, is something we haven't seen before. And uh, I know there was drones involved. There was, uh, as Dom said, you know, vehicles um, MRAPs, Humvees, there was a large amount of infantry. Uh, so it became more of a combined ops operation. So instead of being, you know, a sabotage or a diversionary attack, it, it was really a full frontal attack. And uh, a point that someone brought up to me yesterday, and I think it's a, a great point. A lot of people were, you know, there's always that nuclear question. I think Lavrov said today, you know, they're, they're using the nuclear rhetoric again, and that scares people. And they're saying, you know, we shouldn't shouldn't go into Russia or Ukraine-aligned troops uh, shouldn't be messing around in Russia. But and what I said to them was, you know, if Russia can launch an attack using a force from a, a foreign sovereign state, as they did at the beginning of the war when they invaded Ukraine from Belarus, is there a difference of Ukraine being used as a platform for a foreign force to attack another sovereign state? And, and if we, again, we won't know for potentially years uh, what really happened here, but on the face of it, it seems to be, you know, a, a Russian rebel group, an anti-Putin, non-Ukrainian group of individuals that went over and attacked there. And very similar to, to Russia attacking via Belarus, foreign military from a foreign sovereign state attacking another sovereign state. So the situation is, is very similar, albeit on a smaller scale. That's fascinating. Thank you, Daniel. You mentioned uh, at the beginning of your answer there some of the uh, the drone training that you do. Um could you talk a little bit about that? How obviously drones in this in this war in the last year and a half have become hugely important to both militaries. How has your training in that field changed, um, and and has it changed from sort of defence to offence? Yeah, definitely. I think we're you know we're seeing such a different perspective with this war. You know, you're you're able to to watch very very up close and personal videos. You know, drones are uh, very very widespread on both sides of the conflict. You know, these new cops drones, you know, these civilian. Uh, DGI drones, etc. You know, I, I, I remember going back to 2015, 2016 in Syria. Uh, when I was there, there was uh, the beginning of drones being used um, at a very low level. The Islamic State were using drones against people, and it was it was quite terrifying. It was a new concept, um, and now it's becoming 
uh, a standard concept, even with, with NATO militaries, because it's proved to be so successful here. At the beginning of the conflict, you know, just with, with every skill, whether that be soldiers, drone pilots, you know, people were self-taught, they were learning themselves. And, and now we're starting to see a, a much more of a standardization. We have a, a partner, a Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian drone academy called Victory Drones that work under our, our training center. And, and they provide drone courses, basic drone operations courses on uh, very similar platforms, DJI and, and, and other civilian drone platforms. Uh, but the, the big one that we've seen in a definitely an offensive role, um, and they are only for an offensive role, is these uh, FPV drones, these first-person view drones. Um, and effectively, what they are is a, is a very small, cheap, easy-to-produce, low-quality, uh, single-use drone. Um, you know, most people will be familiar with them, uh, I, I believe, on like TikTok and other things. There's these videos of, uh, you know, guys doing stunts, flying these for abandoned buildings, very very niche, uh, niche stunts around, uh, around urban areas. And, and basically what they're being used for now is the Ukrainians, uh, and I believe the Russians were, but predominantly the Ukrainians are uh, attaching uh, rocket-propelled grenades, anti-tank weapons, grenades, and effectively flying these drones directly at a vehicle, at a position, and, and even directly into, into Russian soldiers. What's different about these is they, they do lack an ability to, to conduct reconnaissance and they're usually used in tandem uh, with, with larger drones. But what it means is that, you know, any soldier with, uh, with some training can, can effectively take this drone, this, this small, easy to manufacture drone, uh, very, very difficult to intercept, arguably impossible to intercept and, and effectively take out a vehicle, take out uh, transportation vehicles, take out positions and, and even human beings. And it's effectively a virtual reality headset um, and a controller. And they're very, very agile, very, very small, very difficult to hear. Um, and you're looking first person through that drone. And, and the Ukrainians are, you know, adapting that and, and getting better at it. And, and especially the Ukrainian special forces, what they will do is they will, uh, you know, move behind the enemy lines because these drones have a, a shorter range and they will harass uh, soft skin vehicles, transport vehicles using these drones. And that's a that's a, a new concept. It's something that's just appearing, and it's definitely changed the way that, that anything can be conducted. We're seeing a lot of success uh, with the Ukrainians on the flanks of Bakhmut at the moment, and one of the big reasons for that I have a lot of thousands of former students that have been to Bakhmut in the last few months. And one of their reasons for success, especially on the flanks, is they are moving with a lot of drone cover, whether that be FPV, whether that be uh, DJI, and 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 that's a it's a very new concept. Does it have a, a dominating future over DJI drones? I think it does. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, China are starting to, to make their way into the conflict and, you know, try and wedge themselves into it. Uh, but China are the, the main producers and they control the DJIs. And we're starting to see that make an effect here that the DJIs might not be so viable in the coming months. So we're definitely looking for alternatives. And FPV seems to be one of those alternatives. So we'll be looking at opening up a FPV drone academy in the coming weeks and that will continue to train Ukrainian soldiers uh, how to use that technology. That's absolutely fascinating Daniel just one more question from me Um, you mentioned earlier training um, your students and uh, how that's changed depending on whether Ukraine is on the defensive or the offensive ahead of the uh, counteroffensive last year Um, obviously there's been lots of talk uh, on a potential upcoming counteroffensive from the from from ukraine in the next few months what are your views on this how, how do you think of how do you think of what's been said i think it's uh, it's important to to look at where the ukrainian army was at the last counteroffensive and where they are now 
and that's not just in regards to training you know we, we've done a, a sort of the largest share of, of in-country training but obviously uh, Ukraine's partners in NATO and elsewhere have, have conducted uh, training for large numbers of uh, Ukrainians also uh, a lot of Ukrainians been trained in the UK um, and the Ukrainian army is very different to, to what it was before the last counteroffensive. they're better equipped they're better trained but the argument can be said a lot of these units that have received foreign training haven't haven't had the chance at the combat experience uh, that their their fellow soldiers that have been left in or stayed in Ukraine uh, have had. It's also important not to you know not to see uh, Russia's weaknesses, vulnerabilities, or, or defeats. You know, one can call you know Batmud a, a, a perfect victory, so it's not necessarily a victory, but it doesn't mean the Russians are incapable or you know weak. Uh, if they were, Ukraine would be liberated, the war would be over. So it's important to see that the, the next counteroffensive may not have the same sort of rolling waves of success as the last one did. Russia, especially down in the Zaporizhia region, have, have, have spent unbelievable amounts of money, time and effort into, into building defensives. But the other argument is this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. If the Ukrainians, the front line is now very different. The Ukrainians can penetrate a few certain areas. They can potentially cut off Crimea, which will be devastating for the Russians. They can also penetrate deeper into, into the Donbass. And if these things happen, or if Ukraine are able to reverse, you know, Russia's, again, their victories, but not necessarily. Um, if, Russia, if Ukraine are able to reverse some of, those, uh, some of those victories that the Russians have had in the last few months, uh, such as Bakhmut, where we're drawing to the closure of now, um, Severodonetsk, uh, a lot of these other locations that the Russians fought incredibly hard for, if Ukraine is able to reverse uh, those victories in a small amount of time, could lead to the, the collapse of the Russian army in full. Um, and that's that, I believe, is the goal. Uh, will we see such sort of blinding success in the last one? Um, you know, hold your breath. Uh, you know, sort of a surprise can only work once, then it's no longer a surprise. But uh, the Ukrainians are in the best position that they've been for the entire war um, every day extra every every additional day in this war is a day that the ukrainians are better prepared more western support coming in more western weapons um i believe ben wallace has literally arrived into ukraine today a number of hours ago so we're seeing a lot more uh upfront partnership than we did at the beginning of the war people are, are now committed to this war they're not trying to tiptoe around it so the ukrainians should have the best possible ability to to liberate their territory and secure their sovereign state Thank you very much, Daniel. Um, I know we have a few questions from uh, Dom and Joe in particular. Joe, would you like to go first? Yeah, I, um, I was wondering about the the expendable nature of drones in this conflict. So, Rusi had a fantastic report out by Jack Watlin and Nick Reynolds last week, and they suggested that about 10,000 drones are being lost a month. That obviously includes just single use, your loitering munitions, your kamikaze drones, which the experts will shoot me for and hate me for, for calling them that. But just wondering how could more expert piloting and training that you're providing as part of your organization actually help Ukraine bring that number of losses down? I think one of the uh, things experts say is teaching Ukrainian drone pilots and operators to actually be able to use the landscape for, for, for cover, which is something that the Ukrainian pilots and helicopter pilots have used fantastically. Um, so, yeah, I was wondering if we can get your sort of outlook on how do we help Ukraine become sort of and the Ukraine's drone army become less expendable um, as the as the war kind of continues. So uh, I think a good point to make when I start is I spent uh, almost two years on the the front line 
before the 24th, contrary to popular belief, there was a war here before the Russians uh, invaded the second time. Um, our, our actual orders back then were not to shoot drones, um, even if they were enemy, because we couldn't be sure if they were our drones or not. That's how valuable drones were back then um, in regards to cost and, and the, the funding that the Ukrainian military had. Drones were incredibly valuable. Now, not so much. You know, it, it goes the same as anything. There is a, a huge number of drones coming into Ukraine. Yes, it's definitely a thing. You know, people are not uh, as formally trained as they should be. It's one of the reasons we started opening up these academies. Um, and drone expenditure is, is a large thing. For the, the success you can achieve with a drone, the loss of a drone isn't, isn't that much of a big issue. There is a lot coming into the country. Um, it is getting harder, especially with, with the Chinese refusing to give so many DJIs. But uh, I think the best thing is, is obviously to, something that's massively overlooked is to invest in training, whether that be through uh, support of organizations like myself or other organizations in Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian organizations that provide drone training investing in better trained pilots and finding a more cost-effective way. FPV drones are very cost-effective, uh, but they provide a limited uh, limited opportunity. I know a lot of people, a lot of drone guys now are using their drones a lot less haphazardly, very similar to the Bayaktar situation. We all remember at the beginning of the war, there was you know tons of Bayaktar videos striking Russian targets. And then I think like month three, we didn't, we didn't see another one and we haven't seen one since. And that's because the Bayaktars are used in a more reconnaissance role now. Um, and that's what a lot of drone pilots are doing. So I think investing in training, uh, a better trained drone pilot isn't going to, to lose or break his drone. Um, we, we ran, I think, our fourth uh, drone academy last week and we had two, two DJIs break on that. You know, it happens. Um, and uh, I believe just support and uh, continued assistance to uh, organizations, especially volunteers, they provide for the bulk of the drones. I don't think the military necessarily issues out drones is in Ukraine. People are having to fundraise for them and, and get them from volunteers. So definitely supporting community grassroots efforts to uh, to get drones. Hi, Daniel. It's Dom here. I'll jump in, uh, if I may, just on the back of or continuing this idea about the drones. I mean, I, I thought I was staggered by that that figure from Rusi of 10,000 a month. That is a huge number. It doesn't sound like you're pushing back on that um on that number. It sounds like you recognize that that sort of scale of loss. And actually, it's really interesting that the, the paper was talking in these terms, and, and you yourself are, that the drones are now, um, we should consider them more ammunition than than equipment, really. They are expendable, used, throw away, etc., which is a different way of thinking about it. Obviously, a bit more expensive than a you know, 7.62 round or 5.56 or whatever, but, but you know, not that expensive. And, and if the flow is in there, then, yeah, maybe maybe that rate of attrition is... Is, uh, is acceptable. But I wonder if you could tell us something about the uh, Russian electronic warfare efforts that we are that we hear is is doing so much to bring these drones down. We're told they're not the majority are not being shot down. They are just they're just falling out the sky because the the signal is being interrupted by um, by Russian EW. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that first, please. Yeah, so that's uh, that's definitely an issue. Um, obviously, we're it depends on where the conflict is happening. Um, a lot easier to fly a drone and also a lot easier to intercept a drone if it's in the, the sort of rolling fields of the Donbass. Um, but a lot of our conflict has been focused into Bakhmud um, for the last number of months. So that's an urban area. So obviously it's a lot more difficult to to fly those drones, to keep a signal, etc. cetera. Um, I believe that the... Uh, you know, as, we, as we've seen recently, the, the Russians do have EW platforms. Um, whether they're... They're that effective at, at taking down uh, a lot of the stuff the Ukrainians have now. I, I'd argue not um, because they're, you know, their technology is very dated. It's, it's not moving with the conflict, whereas Ukraine's is. Um, 
I think the, the honestly the biggest loss isn't isn't necessarily EW. Um, most of the EW platforms that are targeting small drones are these these drone guns we've seen, these sort of doom-looking weapons that, that soldiers carry around that shoot out a, a, a by no means an expert, but a, they shoot a, a I believe an RF signal that interrupts the the connection between the controller and the drone, effectively just just dropping the drone out of the sky. Um, but again, these are these are not necessarily things that the military are providing on a large scale as well. Volunteers are buying these. Um, and what we've seen since the beginning of the conflict, even dating back to the very beginning of the conflict in 2014, the Ukrainians have a much stronger volunteer system. They're, they're, they're much stronger population, populational support for the military in their conflict. So um, if I was to say, you know, the who's losing more drones to EW? I would definitely say Russia, but who has more drones? Ukraine. So the, the numbers are relative to the sides. Um, you, you'd struggle to find much Russian drone footage um, as opposed to Ukrainian drone footage, which is which is so widespread. Um, and the technology evolves. Ukrainians, uh, I met with a, with a friend today. He's uh, developing lots of different drone systems and, and uh, radar and, you know, all these other systems that are way above my pay grade. Um, but uh, he's developing these systems, you know, almost himself. Um, and a lot of the drone instructors we meet and the, the drone uh, experts are former IT guys. And they're tech guys and they're building this themselves. And we're just not seeing a reflection of that on the Russian side. So I, I would I would say a lot of it's more down to error, um, you know, being shot down uh, and small drone guns. than it is to large electronic warfare um, systems. If the electronic warfare was successful, we wouldn't have seen the drone attacks that we saw a few weeks ago, um, or we wouldn't see continuous uh, drone attacks in Russia proper on uh, power substations, infrastructure, and things like that. So Russian military EW, probably not a bit of a big concern as there are other factors. Cheers. Just a couple more, if I if I may. You mentioned um, DJI. The, these, so these are the um, Chinese drones, the Dajong Innovation is the company. Um, and you say you're trying to come away from them. Do you think is that is that because there's a concern that some of the data is going back to China from the from the drones you're using? So, so yeah. Again, I just just want to reiterate. I'm sure there's some people that are going to listen that are far more knowledgeable than me. I'm, I'm not an expert, but um, what we're aware of is obviously yeah, the, the the Chinese do control the system. I believe there's a program called Aeroscope, which you know shows uh, drones in the sky and that sort of thing. But the Ukrainians are, and it is you know part of doctrine. They are uh, hacking these drones. They are um, taking them off that system, removing them from DJI's system. Um, it's an issue as well with with Starlink. Uh, I believe Starlink is is a lot more compromised than it was before. Obviously, Elon Musk has changed his opinion on on everything. Um, but uh, yeah, they're trying to move away from those systems. Starlink, DJI. Um, I believe they're definitely, uh, you know, if, if you're in a, a conflict against a country like Russia and, and where China sits on the fence, you, you don't necessarily want to be flying around Chinese drones. Um, but the effort is to come away from that. The biggest issue is DJI is the most easily accessible. Um, it's accessible around the world. It's relatively cost effective uh, compared to other, uh, other options like Parrot. Um, or tell as well. Um, these the DJI makes a fantastic thermal drone, which is in wide use now, um, which is you know a quarter of the price of the competitors. It's easy to set up and it's easy to use. But as as Dom, you you know very well, um, the stuff they give you in the military shouldn't be easy to use. If it's easy to use, there's there's a risk, there's a problem. So moving away from that, um, I think we'll have to look more west um, and see what our what our partners bring us. Um, because, you know, we can't can't maintain our system. We still don't know where China sits on the fence, but it is fact that they are 
exploiting the DJI technology and they are uh, damaging the supply of DJI drones into Ukraine and into Europe. I, uh, I recognise what you're saying about um, kit given to the military has got to be got to be foolproof. But I also remember the old phrase of uh, never forget your weapon was made by the lowest bidder, uh, which always fills you with, with confidence. But just finally, um, you mentioned earlier on about when, how years ago you were told not to shoot down the drones because you weren't sure if they were yours or the other side or what have you, which speaks right to the heart of how you deconflict. How do you know where the Russian drones are and where your drones are? How do you have some form of combat identification for these things? How do you, how do Ukrainian forces fly them knowing that you're not about to have a, an air assault, helicopter assault come through the area and spank in because they get a load of drones in the engine intake? I mean, how take, going on one level from training people how to use drones, how well knitted together is that next level of training about integrating with other arms so that the control of the drone can call in artillery or mortars or equally different units can say, look, I'm putting a block around these grid squares because I'm flying drones in there, or rather I'm, I'm putting a block around this area because I'm, I'm about to fly a fast jet through there or something like that. Is that, is that level happening yet? So yeah, actually we, we had a number of meetings recently um, in regards to expanding from what we have already, our, our basic drone operators course and, and moving more into a, a tactical military operation course. And uh, one of the big, big stoppers of that is communication. Um, it was a problem that sort of curtailed us, uh, a very small tidbit, but I remember I think 2019 we were, we were outside Mariupol in the trenches and drone was flying around small dgi we got on the radio you know whose drone is that they said oh don't worry it's our drone don't shoot it and then i think literally three or four seconds after they said that it dropped a grenade on us and it turned out it wasn't our drone so communication is the biggest stopper to that um obviously that you know going if you're looking at aircraft being in an airspace um that's very high level communication and again as you know don that that's not sometimes not the military strong point um different arms communicating with each other so there's there's definitely that risk there but it's something we're looking to to integrate um is to making these drone pilots more effective at a higher level um at the moment most drone pilots are are young tech savvy guys um and because they're young and because they're you know not necessarily military minded not all of them um they're normally lower ranking guys you're not seeing many officers as drone pilots or you know sergeants and above as drone pilots so they don't have a, a such a big voice in in orders or you know they're not hearing all the information and that's something that we're trying to improve um bringing those things together but but definitely communication is a strong point um allowing people to know but again the drones don't have you know they're not aircraft they you, you can't really tell if it's a friendly or an enemy drone um our normal sops back in the day and i'm i'm sure it's the same now in the trenches or wherever you are drones overhead get into cover drop whatever you're doing get into cover um and don't believe don't believe what a don't believe what an officer tells you. It could be not your drone. Well, thank you very much, uh, Daniel. We're starting to reach the end of our time today. Unfortunately, it's been really fascinating hearing from you. Can I just ask two very very quick questions before we go to our final thoughts? One, um, you mentioned earlier how the supply of Western weapons and supports has really increased. Can I ask you what do you think uh, like your centre still lacks? What, what what would you want to see? And also, could you tell us just a little bit about your life in Kharkiv at the moment? Um, as you said earlier, you've been under pretty much constant shelling for the duration of the full scale invasion. Um, how is how is your 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 life away from your work changed so in re- in regards to western weapons you know i don't want to uh western support not necessarily weapons non-lethal as well um i think you know a lot of people may be worn out of ukraine asking for stuff but uh you know it, it, it's needed um 
it definitely determines the future of, of Europe and a lot of the world space. But we're getting these these big things, these these storm shadows. Uh, you know, F-16s are now on the table. These these huge uh, weapons uh, that dominate the meme space, dominate the the public space, and and they're great. They they make huge battlefield changes, but it's also focusing on the lowest level. Um, and and you know that's why I look from the lowest level up. We we train ground infantry soldiers. We train medics. We train lots of other skills. Um, and there there really isn't uh, enough support for the lowest level. Um, you know, Storm Shadow is great. It makes a rolling change on the battlefield when a, a Russian supply depot or a, you know a, a Russian base is hit. But to to change the 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 lifestyle of that guy on the ground, the most important part of the conflict is the soldier. You know, you the weapon's only effective as the uh, as the person holding it. Afghanistan's a prime example. Um, Ukraine is the right people to hold it, but making sure that also at the lowest levels, uh, people are supported. Training um, is a big issue. Uh, it's great training in the UK. It's great training in Germany um, for specialist systems that obviously can't be provided in country. Um, but providing a base of training within the country, um, the vast majority of my students, 90% of them, they come from the front line to our training. Uh, that's why we're based uh, out in the east side of the country is because these guys can't leave the front line. You know, it'd be great if we could send the entire Ukrainian army to to, to Katarik or to, to Brecon Beacons to train, but it's just not possible. So providing more uh, assistance with, with operations that are ongoing in-country um, would be fantastic. Uh, obviously, I have a biased opinion. Uh, I run a large training organization, but um, yeah, lower, lower level things. In regards to Kharkiv, um, Hockey hasn't changed. Uh, you know, we're still, um, I have almost open all the time, the, the local telegram groups, which tell you if rockets have been launched, how many are coming. We had uh, the day that the, uh, the Belograd uh, People's Republic uh, liberation was ongoing. Um, they were launching S-300s at us. So their, their response to that, instead of maybe, you know, sending a, a battalion tactical group to intercept this, this cross-border incursion, their reaction was an emotional one. It was, it was one of anger, one of you know spite, and it was okay. They're attacking Belgrade. Let's uh, let's bomb civilians in Kharkiv. Kharkiv's a very lively city now. Um, you know, very very similar to to most cities in Ukraine. People have returned. Um, they've come back. Uh, they've continued to work, continued to live. Um, we we moved off our location, obviously, uh, without saying anywhere. We we were you know relatively close strikes during the incursion, uh, so we decided to evacuate and. You know, these, these explosions going on and we're driving through villages and, and in towns and in the city and people are just walking around like normal. A um, bit of complacency and also, uh, you know, war weariness, but things are, things are a lot better. When I came here a year ago, the Russian army were kilometers outside of the city. They were, they were shelling with all, all manner of conventional weapons. They're now out of that range, but uh, almost daily or by daily, uh, we're receiving these, these S-300 strikes and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not a great thing. Uh, I would, there's one point I just wanted to sort of drop on people. It's very small. Um, something I forgot to mention. Obviously, Don mentioned about some of the footage from Belgrade being uh, fake and being staged by the Russians and uh, a lot of Western weapons captured. And that justifies Russia's narrative of, you know, uh, the US or US support for attacking Russia proper. But if you look at any video of the Wagner Group from Batmood, anything like that, you'll see most of them are now equipped with Western weapons. Um, you know, it's a war. Things get lost. Things get captured, um, and the Russians now have a large amount of uh, uh, of Western, you know, low-level weapons or vehicles. 
So it's definitely not out of the ordinary that, uh, that things could be staged. The Russians do have access to that equipment. That's just uh, the nature of war. But yeah, thank you for having me on. Thank you, David. Thank you, Dom and everyone else. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Been really great hearing you, Daniel. Do stay safe, and um, thanks so much for answering all of our questions. It was really fascinating uh, speaking to you, and I'm, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll see you again. Um, can I go to our final thoughts, Joe Barnes? I know you have to run because you're heading back to Kiev. Would you like to go first? Yeah, sorry, the signal might be a bit dodgy because we're just uh, just loaded on a bus. Um, but uh, just another kind of funny anecdote about Boris Johnson and Britain, the perception of Britain um, and its support for Ukraine. So I was um, in. Uh, Sorry, I was in um, this village and um, we, uh, a lady came up to me and saw my blonde hair and uh, he was like, oh, look at me, I've also got a Boris-style haircut. Um, so despite him have gone and Rishi be doing a great job supporting Ukraine, he's still very much um, in their hearts and minds, I think. And that will be me signing off. I've got to go. So goodbye. All right. Thank you very much for that, Joe. Um, best of luck in Kiev. And if any listeners are in Kiev and do see Joe, do do wave, do wave and call him Boris Johnson. Dom Nichols, would you like to go next? Thanks, David. I can't wait to hear what happened to Joe just then. I think he got told off by the conductor because, as we know, as we know, Ukrainian public services do go on time. Hey, David. Um, so very quickly, three things. Um, the the images that uh, that I was talking about earlier and that Daniel mentioned. Daniel, thanks so much for coming on. I do absolutely underline your comment about don't trust an officer and what uh, what they say. But um, the, the images that I was suggesting might have been staged. Uh, Joe has written about them, or they, they are topping the story that Joe's got on online at the moment. So if you have a look at our website, you'll you'll see the images I'm I'm talking about, and we can we can carry the conversation on on Twitter if you think I'm talking rubbish there. Um, secondly, uh, there's a Russian research ship has been attacked in the Black Sea. Drone drone attacks. They've said they shot down everything, but they were this this ship was attacked coming back through the Bosphorus. The research vessel not being a warship, is allowed to cross the Bosphorus. Uh, the state of war, no, no warring parties are allowed to enter or leave, um, but a research vessel is, and I think it's based in Sevastopol anyway, so it's got uh, got some legitimate right to be crossing. But anyway, Russian research vessel. This chimes with what we said days ago, shaping operations. You're going to get lots of these different strikes, different natures of strikes, different locations, different times, different types. You know, this is all just making Russia go, what the hell is going on? Where is it coming from next? And then finally, as Daniel said, Ben Wallace in Kiev today. He's arrived. He's been chatting with Alexei Reznikov, um, Ukraine's defence minister. They've been talking about Storm Shadow, other munitions, other assistance. And Mr. Reznikov said they also discussed NATO accession, um, which is what, you know, obviously, Ukraine very keen to push that. I don't think, I still don't think there's any prospect soon at all for you for Ukraine to be admitted to NATO. But, 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 there's a a growing thought that maybe something like, um, so that it's now kind of defunct. But the, what was the NATO Russia Council, a means of just reaching out, touching the other side, a, a consultation and cooperation body. Um, joint joint action, joint, joint decision making that existed and it kind of worked. If it can work with Russia, why not have a NATO Ukraine council? That might be uh, some some other some some mechanism to bring them closer into the security fold. But I'll, I'll better leave that and um, uh, try and work out what the hell's happened to Joe. Um, uh, Francis Stanley. Thanks, David. Lots of interest in Belgorod for obvious reasons. Lots of discussion about it today. Just wanted to point listeners to an interesting thread on Twitter from Margot Gonta, a journalist in Kiev. And she offers something of a brief history, contested history, it has to be said, of Belgorod or Bilhorod, uh, which was the old name for the city when it was Ukrainian. Now, the Russian army collapsed in 
1917, famously, and much of the Russian Empire with it uh, as a consequence of the First World War and the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which came the year later. Won't go into all of that now. But as there was this brief window, which we've talked about many times, where Ukraine became a sovereign nation as part of the treaty that saw Russia able to withdraw from the First World War. And uh, at that time, Bilhorod was one of these places that became very important in this new Ukraine. And it had its own civic control. It had a new Ukrainian language being introduced in schools. The state guard was operating. And yet it remained fought over. And the Bolsheviks eventually won it back in 1918. They were then forced the Ukrainian forces to withdraw from the city. And in 1919, it was actually somewhere that the whites had a base. The whites, of course, being the anti-Bolshevik coalition in the Russian Civil War, it's a far bloodier war than many people realise. Millions died in that war after the Bolshevik seizure of power, but we won't go into that today, until eventually the Bolsheviks did take Bilharod back and it became once again part of Russia. It's a very complicated story. As I say, I'm not going to go into all of it now, but it's just another example, I think, of how history is always more complicated and more nuanced than it appears at first. And so this interesting place, which many of us are learning about in detail for the first time, it's somewhere that perhaps can be explained in part as to why this place has been chosen for this activity when one looks at its very interesting history and, as I say, a contested one. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.